Travel Growth Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Travel Growth Podcast. I'm Tom McLaughlin, founder of SEO Travel, and this is where I speak to successful travel business leaders and dig into the successes, challenges and learnings from their experiences over the years. So you, the listener, can take away actionable advice to enhance your own businesses and maybe even lives too. My guest today is Zakia Gary. Zakia is the founder of Invisible Cities, a social enterprise that trains people who have experienced homelessness to become walking tour guides of their own city. Hello, and welcome to the Travel Growth Podcast. I'm Tom McLaughlin, founder of SEO Travel, and this is where I speak to successful travel business leaders and dig into the successes, challenges, and learnings from their experiences over the years. So you, the listener, can take away actionable advice to enhance your own businesses and maybe even lives too. My guest today is Zakia Gary. Zakia is the founder of Invisible Cities, a social enterprise that trains people who have experienced homelessness to become walking tour guides of their own city. I thought this was the perfect conversation to start season two of the podcast, as Zakia's insight into purpose, innovative business approaches, and her general impact on the world is a truly inspirational one. We discussed the journey that led to starting Invisible Cities and Zakia's experiences with the homeless that led to that previously. We also cover her experience in a startup incubator and the benefits that that brought, some amazing guerrilla marketing experiences that Zakia used with Invisible Cities, as well as going into depth on social enterprise and the benefits of taking that path with your entrepreneurial spirit. This is a really inspiring episode from a truly inspirational woman. I hope you enjoy it. Zakia, hello. Welcome to the Hi show. Hi there. Um, I'm really excited to have you on. Um, yeah, the, the kind of little while that we've had since I got to know about you and, and what you're doing with Invisible Cities has been, uh, yeah, has been great. I've done lots of reading and background and research and yeah, there's loads of fantastic stuff that you're doing and super inspiring. Uh, and I've no doubt that people who are listening will, yeah, will take lots away from, from what you're doing with the, with the business and how you have things set up and, and hopefully will kind of go away with the feeling to go and do something themselves with their own business that, you know, can help them make a, make a difference in the same way that you have. So, uh, yeah, thanks for coming on. No, thank you for having me and um, listening to me and um, and to what we do. And if it can inspire anyone, then great. Um, and it's always fantastic to be able to share our story. So I appreciate the opportunity. Yeah, super. Um, as a to, to start things off, what I kind of normally do is, go into the journey of what people have done to get to where they start the business. But I thought maybe we could start with you with just outlining what Invisible Cities is, and then maybe we'll go on to the journey bit after that, because I think the building blocks will, if we've got the context, the building blocks will make sense as well. So uh, yeah, maybe just give us a quick overview of Invisible Cities, what it is, how you've set it up, that, yeah, that, that kind of thing. So Invisible Cities is a social enterprise, and we basically train people who have experienced homelessness to become walking tour guides of their own city and we offer those walking tours to tourists locals residents um, to show them a side of our cities that they may not know um, or to show them an invisible side which also includes social justice and some of the issues happening in in this in the places but also some personal stories from our guides. So we focus a lot on employability and trying to develop skills for the people we work with. 
um, while giving them a voice when too often they haven't had their voices heard in the past or they feel like they haven't. Um, and we try to break down the stigma that exists around homelessness. Um, and after starting in 2016 in Edinburgh, where I'm based, um, we managed to get to other cities, Glasgow, Manchester, York, with plans of going to other places in the future um, and to kind of replicate what we do in as many um, cities as possible. Yeah, fantastic. Um, so take, take us back then with the, yeah, what, what set you off on the journey to, to doing this and deciding that this was the, the thing that what you wanted to do? So whether that's back to like education, whether there's things before that, that, that happened, kind of fill, fill us in on a bit of a potted history that, that got you here. Um, I think I haven't really had a vocation of working within homelessness, um, if I'm being completely honest here. Uh, I think I started my career as um, a teacher and I studied English and literature and linguistics. So I was very much on the path of um, just becoming a teacher or an academic as well. I considered for a while, but I've always had a very strong kind of connect connection to the community and wanting to do uh, good work and wanting to support others and that's come definitely from my mum who um, was highly involved very locally um, and especially with women in her own community so that sense of people need a bit of help sometimes and if I can bring that help then that would be great has always been ingrained in me but it was never something that I considered doing professionally um, I taught in England. I taught English in France and French in Scotland, um, and I did loads of different things. But my first big um, experience within homelessness and working directly with people was when I was part of the Homeless World Cup Foundation, which is a network of street soccer organisations, um, and a bit like an umbrella to all of these organizations, trying to support them all year round, but specifically once a year, they would put an event on the World Cup um, where teams of people who'd all experienced homelessness would come together, represent the country and try to win. Um, and so to me, I came from an angle of, a, of an event organizer, of working on the event, making the event happen. But what I discovered was that I really enjoyed working with people and it broke down my own stereotypes that I had of what homelessness should look like, who were these people, what they had experienced um, and, and the kind of impact I could have because I realized that even on a very small level, uh, by treating people like people, you can make a real difference. And I met thousands of people over the years from around the world who would all say the same, that when they were back home, they felt that they were judged, that people didn't understand why they had ended up needing support or ended up on the streets or in prison. And you can imagine we had people from very various you know, situations, shelters, the streets, people lived in the forest, you know, sometimes lived in centers. So very different from place to place, but they all had that sense that they, they wanted to belong somewhere and they hadn't really found that. So I think I realized if we can provide that sense of belonging, of support, of family, then that'll make a difference. Um, and it's through my work at the Homeless World Cup that I started being aware of people like The Big Issue, you know, the street magazine, um, 
that we have in the UK, but also exist um, in other countries around the world. There is a, you know, there are street papers um, in loads of different areas. So um, seeing how innovative they were and entrepreneurial, because what happens is a street vendor buys the magazine, so buys their own stock of product and then resells that um, for hire. So you manage your own money, you try to generate more sales. So like any other entrepreneur. So I really loved this idea of giving people the tools to do something slightly different, empower them to be independent and financially more resilient. So I guess some of that came from my experience at The Big Issue as well. Um, and I, I was fortunate enough to travel a lot through my work at the Homeless World Cup. And one of the places I traveled to was Greece. And in Greece, the street paper um, called Shedia also started thinking about the idea of generating tours. Um, so the street vendor could also show you a version of their Athens um, if you were interested. At the time, um, this may have changed now, um, and with the pandemic, I haven't been in many years, but um, if you were working in that sphere, it was really interesting. But if you were not, then it was slightly kind of a too niche of a product um, for people to do. So I thought, you know, this is what I want to do in Scotland, um, but I want to have it available for everyone, for every tourist who comes to Scotland initially to see the city in a different way. And that was very much the beginning of Invisible Cities. Yeah, nice. And what did, I guess, what did you take from the, the, the time at the Homeless World Cup? Because you said, I think when you first went, you were meant to be there a short amount of time, a few months maybe, and then you ended up being there about about five years. What What did you, like, what kept you there for so much longer than you thought? And like, how did that look? You mentioned you traveled a lot. What What were you doing in that in that role as you were, yeah, as you were moving around? So when I started at the Homeless World Cup, it was in 2011, which at the time the tournament, the annual tournament was taking place in Paris, in France. So I came on the basis that I could translate, communicate uh, with the local organizing team and I could support in the event happening. Um, and uh, it's a bit like the Olympics, if you think about it as a process. So a country or a city bids to host a tournament, they put together a local committee, and then there's a liaising, all, you know, constant communication to make it happen until it happens and we're all on site and we all kind of run the event. With the French team being French, if I may say so myself, because I am French, was being really difficult sometimes. And so I think having a translator was good. Um, so I came in for only eight months to do that and like you said stayed for five years because during the tournament I ended up being in charge of visa applications for example or accommodation or sorting out every um, you know I remember somebody requested an AA meeting and came to me and said I need to go now like I need to find a meeting now in English in Paris at that point, I'm not sure I fully understood what an NA meeting was. So I was like, right, I'll try to find you that. So, you know, all of and found loads of them. Um, so those kind of support day to day during the tournament ended up doing and medical records and um, the traveling kind of process. All of that gave me an insight onto the challenges that everyone had, um, because when you have to find a 
a visa for somebody who doesn't have a last name, for example, which happened to me on my first year. I was like, how can you not have a last name? And then when he explained to me, he said, you know, my name is Jimmy. I've lived on the streets and he was from Indonesia my whole life. So everybody's always called me Jimmy. So I don't really know what it is. And it actually makes sense. So you have to logistically, it was challenging and exciting in a way because you work on things you had never thought you would. Um, but at the same time, it really gave me an idea of what everyone was experiencing. Um, and so I started with admin and logistics. And like I said, a lot of translation and the tournament moves year to year. So the year after I was in Mexico, then in Poland, then in Chile, and then in Amsterdam. And I became this person who was in charge of the teams and of making sure the teams would come to a tournament. So all the people really, we used to joke in my team, there was somebody running the tournament, making sure the tournament happened. So building the stands and the pitches and that type of thing. Um, and I was in charge of the people. So making sure people actually came along um, in terms of teams. Um, and then when it wasn't tournament time, I would travel from country to country to see um, those different organizations that put the teams together. So sometimes it was a very big NGO. So it could be the Salvation Army, for example, or it was a group of volunteers who decided to organize soccer sessions on the beach somewhere. So they all had very different challenges um, needed different help and if we could learn from one country to the next or if we could ha organize exchanges you know we tried to come up with different ways to make people work together as a team and no longer as you know team Bosnia or team Nigeria or team Mexico so it was incredibly interesting and, and like I said made me kind of travel from around the world um, but also gave me an understanding of what homelessness looked in all these places Mm. And we, you mentioned, you said to me, uh, I think when, when we spoke last time, it, sometimes you felt a bit like the royal family just kind of turning up in different places and sort of seeing what was happening and then moving on to the next place. But I guess that experience must have given you so much kind of knowledge and information and uh, like you say, perspective of, of how, how homelessness affected people in different places because it sounded like it wasn't the same challenge, you know, when you moved around. Exactly. And and sometimes it's the easiest way to explain what I would do. Um, and we had partners like UFA or other sponsors or whatever who wanted to know the kind of work that was happening day to day in those places. Uh, or we had supporters who wanted to or, you know, people following us who wanted to know. And so I would go to a place, visit the program, speak to the players, but also see the grassroots work they were doing. So, you know, come in, get told all the stories and then move on to the next bit. Uh, usually be taken for food and then, you know, move on to the next bit. So, um, and the, sometimes I took things with a pinch of salt because people would show you a picture that, you know, forgetting to include some things and some challenges and things like that. But it was a good, you know, it was, so diverse i mean i stayed in hostels in eastern europe and i went to sessions football sessions in prisons um football sessions on the beach you know um boxing academy in indonesia anything that people were doing at grassroots level 
um, sober houses, you know. And I would say that to my friends and family and they'd be like, oh, is it safe? Like, are you going to be okay? And and when I said, oh, you know, I'm going to this, yeah, it's Romania, I think it was, and, and we're going to visit the prison. And in the prison, they said, you have to remove all of your rings, all every piece of jewelry you have to not have on you because that can be too dangerous. And I did. I never told my mother that because I think she would have had a heart attack. But it's that type of thing. And I think when you bring those stories back, people were saying, "Oh wow, you know, I it's, it's it seems so dangerous." And it wasn't at all, you know. But I think it's the stigma that you, those places are rough and people are rough, and 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 as a result, you shouldn't get in there to help them. Similarly, sometimes I had lovely, lovely stories. You know, I remember the tournament in Paris. Um, we had a team from Uganda and the tournament is always at a place that's quite visible. So the idea being to show and bring awareness about the issue of homelessness. Mm. So if it can be in the city centre, then it's great. And in Paris, it was on the Champ de Mars, which is, you know, the bit before the Eiffel Tower, very long kind of gardens there. Yeah, okay. And has the military school there. And to go to the military school, you have to cross the road. And the team from Uganda thought, I remember this woman saying to me, what do you mean? If we press the button, then the cars stop. And I said, yes. And she asked me how much it cost. And I said, no, no, you just press the button and then you they, you wait for the light and then you can cross. And, um, and they did it for about 10 minutes, 10, 15 minutes, because <laughs> it was so different. And they came from a very, very rural area. Um, in Uganda, you know, or somebody who'd never had an ice cream before ever. So, and those are lovely, you know, similarly stories of people being so different. Um, and, and I used to love those stories, to tell those stories to my friends and family. And that's when I realized, unless somebody brings you those, you don't really know them, you know, you don't really mm. have access to them and you don't really realize why would they know what an ice cream tastes like? If you're from a very rural area in Uganda, yeah, and and then that's I guess that feeds a bit into the the storytelling side of things. Like, and and this came up when we were t you mentioned the refugee camp in Greece, where it felt like there was a similar thread there that you kind of had that realization that all this stuff was happening, but there was it didn't feel like there was the platform to people to understand that so, like take us back to that time why why did you decide to go and volunteer with the refugees in Greece and then yeah what what did you take from that 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 I guess fed into fed into what you're doing now so in 2015 I left the homeless walk up and I, I wanted to go to Greece and spend time in Greece with the street paper so not working for them but just seeing what they were doing even more um so and it was at the time where the refugee crisis was all over the media in the UK and that picture of the little boy who'd washed off on the beach yeah. had come out and so but of course there was one you know and the, the problem with the media at times is that you have one narrative and stories that are chosen to and picked and and so you don't get to see everything and I just wanted to help and I was really lucky to have a friend who had a contact in a camp and she had said um that contact had said we really desperately need people and just to to help you know with things and because I had logistics experience I guess I thought it fit and, and if I can help 
organising anything, then I will. Um, and so I was on Lesbos Island, um, which was one of the islands people would arrive by boat. Um, then they would need to take a ferry to go to Athens and then from Athens kind of go to other places in Europe. Um, and I realised that once again, I didn't know anything about the people that actually arrived on the island or the process they had to go through. Now, bear in mind, I considered myself quite knowledgeable in that area because I read a lot about it. And I also, part of the Homeless World Cup, sometimes we would work with refugees. So um, certain teams had refugees uh, you know, as part of them. And there were little things that I knew, for example, um, we had teams sometimes who had all the same date of birth. So it would all be either the 31st of December or the 1st of January. And when you have five people in a row that have that date of birth in the same team, you're like, oh, this is odd. But actually, um, if people haven't disclosed their exact date of birth because they don't want to tell you how old they are, the administration usually gives you a date of birth that will be 31st of December or 1st of January. So I knew little snippets like that. So I considered myself like, okay, I know quite a bit about it. And I didn't. And I met people who were highly educated, um, whose English was so much better than mine, um, and who also traveled with a lot of money, a lot of cash. Because, and that's the first thing that surprised me. And, and then if you think about it and you leave everything you have behind, you take everything you can as well with you, all the money, all the cash you can. So it made for a very dangerous kind of environment, um, knowing that people could potentially carry cash. Um, but also how opportunistic people could be. So, you know, a telephone company had set up a pop-up store in one of the camps to sell people SIM cards and things like that. Um, the island was doing really well off the back of so many people coming in and buying sleeping bags if they could afford it or things like that. But obviously you had people who thought, I'll go to Europe and then my problems will be fixed. And actually when they arrived in where we were, you were given a number, a bit like in the post office, like a queue number. And then when your number was called, you had to, you were given a paper that told you you had 90 days to go anywhere and claim asylum there. And when I left, there was a six day delay between the moment you were given a number and that moment your number was called. So you had to wait six, seven days. And people were saying, what should I do in that? In the meantime, where can I stay? And we didn't have any of these answers. I was like, I don't know. I There is no facility. There are hotels, but you you know now have to pay a lot of money for them. Um, and so there was a massive, even amongst the volunteers, we didn't know what was happening at times. And um, and I realized, you know, there's a lot of my own stereotypes and judgments that I'd made that people would need my help. Sometimes wasn't true, you know, like I said, if they spoke better English than me or or whatever. And, and sometimes I, I just wanted to meet people and see how I could help them as well. And I realized that unless those stories are brought to us in an authentic way. So from the people who have experienced them, then it's quite hard to exactly know what is happening. And I think that was my yeah. take from, from Lesos. Yeah. So what, what happened then that, it, it, like you said, it kind of gave you the idea of 
that here's a thing that you could take and you could set up in Scotland. What what made you actually do it? Because a lot of people have ideas. <laughs> so why why did you be? Why were you the person that decided to go and actually do this thing? What motivated you to to make it happen? The first thing that I did is approach the big issue in Scotland, um, and um, they were really supportive, but they were really small at the time, and so they were saying we can't take it on as a project or as a, as a thing either find someone else, another organisation, or do it yourself and we'll be involved and we'll support you. But um, And maybe, you know, some of our vendors can be guides and, and all of that, but we can't do it, certainly. Um, and I think what made me think... I, I Before even doing anything, I decided to speak to a lot of people in the sector, so who worked within homelessness in Edinburgh, um, I spoke to different charities, um, to staff from these charities, and it's very funny because some of them have become my friends uh, with years, and one of them reminded me, it was a woman who worked for a charity providing um, counselling support, and she said, we used to meet, which I'd forgotten actually, we used to meet in cafes, in random cafes, so I would tell her what my plan was and what I was thinking, and one day she said to me, do you need a bit of money? If you want, I'll give you a thousand pounds. And I was like, why? And recently she brought it up to me and said, do you remember when I offered you a thousand pounds? I didn't even have money myself. I don't know why I was doing this. So a lot of these people have ended up really supportive and friendly and, but talking to different charities to see if they would want to be involved, if they thought it was a good idea, if it was going to be useful. Um, and 99% of people I spoke to back then are involved in some capacity today. So it was a good a good thing to do. And, you know, everyone said, yes, I can see how bringing confidence to people, bringing a completely different set of skills, but also using tourism, which in Edinburgh is such a big thing or was such a big thing, you know, pre-COVID, um, as a force for good can really work. Um, and and that's why I decided, okay, if everybody's telling me it's good, it must be good. So I'll I'll give this a go. Um, and I was lucky enough to be part of our incubator program in Edinburgh, um, that really helped me shape what invis what I wanted to do with Invisible Cities, and um, how we wanted to train people and how we wanted to set up. And so we are a not for profit which is, you know, down to our constitution. And, and so it, it isn't even profiting me. If I ever leave the organisation, I'm entitled to get one pound um, symbolically. Yeah. Um, what kind of training did we want to have? You know, that type of thing. So by the time I left the incubator, which lasted about four months, then we were up and running uh, already in Edinburgh. And that was in 2016. Yeah. So Nice. And, and we're... So just tell us those steps you were talking to people did had you got things up and running before you did the incubator experience or was that kind of the thing that you went in to do to to make it to make it start moving yeah before the incubator i didn't have i didn't even have a job <laughs> and i'm not um so i'm not a person that saves money so hopefully that will change in the future i'm working on this for myself 
But if I have £10, I'll spend 11 Like, that's what I am. Um, my mother was like that as well, so I blame her. But... Um, <laughs> So I needed I needed work uh, because I needed to pay for my own bills and for my own things. So I took us a, a part time job in an organ in another social enterprise that mostly focused around food and feeding people called Social Bite. So they have a pay it forward scheme where you can buy two coffees and leave one behind the counter for somebody to pick up. Um, they and when I came on board, they wanted to organise set times where people could access hot food so open the cafe but solely for our homeless customers if you want um and not and and where everything would be free um so i came in to do just that um and that helped me pay my bills but because it was part-time and i was in the incubator i could also work on the business and, and try to make it work when i joined the good ideas academy which is the name of the incubator we didn't have anything. I didn't even have a name for the business. I wanted to call it Invisible Edinburgh. And then the person running the incubator said, no, 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 you have to call it cities because one day, maybe in 10 years time, you'll want to go to other cities and you'll be stuck because um, you'll have to do this process all over again. Yeah. 10 years came really fast. It wasn't 10 yeah, years, yeah. it was two years. <laughs> so it was a very good piece of advice. Um, so all these things and looking at training and what kind of connections I could have um, in terms of the tourism industry. So talking, we had on um, on board as, as somebody really supporting me from the start, a Blue Badge Guide, a woman named Susie, who had trained all of her life to be a guide. And she was in her 70s back then, um, looking at what kind of training do we need to bring people who... And when you're trained to be a Blue Badge Guide, it's very academic. It's based on essays and you have to learn your history. So the people that I wanted to work with at the time may have issues with literacy or may have issues with attention span. So that wasn't possible for them. Um, so together we thought about that. And I took all these steps during my time at the incubator. So for anyone, you know, listening out there wanting to do something, I think having that structure that a course can bring you or a program can bring you is really good because I remember we were meeting every Monday night and it gave me the space and the time and even mentally I knew I had to do my homework for that day, I had to do all the work for that day and when you're really busy running a family or running a home or you know or running other things, working in other areas, it's very important to set that time to work on your idea. Um, and for me, it was the catalyst of making it happen. Similarly, we worked on the funding part of it. Um, so what kind of grants could I access to start up? And in Scotland in particular, there are several um, offers for social enterprises if you want to start um, and and you can access a bit of money to, to do different things. And I used my hat from the Homeless World Cup. Um, I approached Edinburgh Airport who I knew had a community fund from my homeless work up time. So I said, look, I'm setting up this new thing. I would like to apply to the community fund. What do you think? And um, they said, yeah, here's the form, just apply. And then you'll get an answer within two weeks. And they gave us, they gave me at the time, 2000 pounds, I think, um, right. to set up a website, to print some leaflets, to get some uniforms, get some stationery for those training sessions, you know, and then, 
when you run a business, you know, £2,000 doesn't go that that far. But sometimes you just need to buy stuff that I couldn't yeah. get for free. Um, and and so that was really helpful as well. And again, the incubator gave me the time and space to do that from. Yeah. And who, who was in that incubator with you? Were you... Were you... Were there lots of other businesses at the same time that you were meeting other people doing yeah. like similar things? Were they setting up their own? Was it all social enterprise focused, or were there just people setting up random businesses? What? Yeah, how did the kind of wider nature of the people in it look? No, it was um, for social enterprises. So it was, um, and and I have to say, like, I was lucky that I came from experience of what social enterprise was with the homeless world cup, uh, and you know, being in contact with the big issue so much. Um, I wanted to, to do it in a charitable way, in a way, but also being entrepreneurial. So for me, it was the perfect mm. model. Um, so you had fellow social enterprises. Some people were at a stage where um, they were set up, up and running and had been running for a year. Uh, some of them a bit further than that. And some of the people even were before me in that journey where they thought, okay, I like horses and I'd like to create change and I don't really know what to do. So the peer kind of work was really, really good in terms of, it feels like a lifetime ago. So I think if you'd asked me a few years ago, I would have said, oh yeah, we're all in touch. And a bit like when you leave university, right? Um, we're all in touch and we meet up and we work together and, and we don't do that that much anymore. Um, and especially after 18 months of staying in, but we all did very different things and worked in very different sectors. You had somebody who ran um, an arts festival and somebody who was public, uh, publishing a magazine and you had a tool library where you can come in and borrow tools and items for the house. Um, I'm trying to think who else was there. But yeah, so the, the peer kind of support was incredibly important yeah. because I don't think I knew what I got myself into. Um, yeah. And and they were, we were able to support one another. Yeah. It's always nice to be alongside people having a similar experience, isn't it? To, like you say, questions just coming from every angle and, you know, rather than just having kind of one place that is, the, I guess, the more like academic place that just feeds you the best practice answer, actually having other people who are going through it at the same time is a, you know, is a, is a massive thing. Exactly. And sometimes you need moral support. You need somebody to say it will be okay, you know, or this didn't work out, that's fine, whatever it may be, you know, and I think, um, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, they come from a place of understanding, whereas a teacher or a tutor, you know, they want you to do well, sure, but you think, oh, you don't know anything about this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, tell, so tell us a bit more about um, just social enterprise in general then. So that for, for people who listen who might not have a full kind of understanding of, of what it is, of what the model is, yeah, tell, tell us more about just like the overview of that. Um, so a social enterprise, if... I think the best definition is to think about it as a hybrid model where you um, are doing something with the purpose of creating impact and social impact and supporting whether a community or a cause or whatever it may be, but 
being an enterprise at the same time. So generating your own money and, and, and being a business. So in our case, we're a tour operator. We sell tours, we sell merch, we sell different things. Um, and we have a lot of freedom within that, like every other business owner might have. But at the same time, you know, we do it as a not-for-profit and um, and reinvest every, every bit of money we make, either in growing the enterprise. So we have paid staff, um, and we generate salaries for ourselves and and for our guides, obviously. But um, so you can pay yourself as part of an of a social enterprise. Um, but so you can grow the company, you can grow where you are, what you do, um, and then use the rest of the profit in whatever charitable way you want. So usually determined by what you want to do. So Scotland is a great kind of hub for social enterprise. You have a lot of support. It's a small country, so. Um, most people know um, each other, but you know there's are some very innovative people doing loads of great work in the social enterprise space. You have um, Change Please, for example. They train people to be baristas. They sell coffee, uh, and sometimes I'm pretty sure that people walk past social enterprise products quite a lot and don't even know that it is social enterprise. Um, so Change Please have coffee they sell in Sainsbury's. You know, and but by buying that coffee, you support them training and employing more people who come from homelessness to become baristas and generate money for themselves, get skills, and hopefully uh, move on. You know, with their lives. You have, hey girls, they sell sanitary items. You know, towels, tampons, and for each box you buy, you they give one for free to a girl in the UK. So they sell them in the co-op, for example. And um, and try to fight period poverty. They do massive campaigns around that. So again, um, there's loads of. It could be a product. It could be a service. Some people um, offer experiences, you know, uh, or con contract work. It could be anything. But I think um, if though all those organisations have a clear social mission behind them and a reason why they do it. Um, and then it can be done in loads of different ways. So, um, yeah, it's a slightly different way of doing business. But it, what's interesting to me is that it remains business. You know, it's not mm. a charity and you don't rely yeah. on donations and you don't yeah. ask, you know, for the... Of course, you can access certain grant funding um, and a lot of the time it'll be, again, hybrid, you know, but you can't access... Um, all grant funding out there, you know, this is a massive thing. We're not a registered charity, so loads of pots of money out there we can't touch because mm -hmm. um, we are a social enterprise. And but so you have some support for that, but you remain a business and, and you have to generate your own money. And I think for us, it's really important so we can be fully independent and do whatever we want to do. Um, and I think for our guides, it's quite important to know that they work for a company. They represent us. They work for us. And if something goes wrong along the way, there will be consequences like they would be in any other job. You know, if you don't turn yeah. up on time at Tesco's for your shift, then, you know, you probably get a warning. So we try to work in a similar way. And I think it's another thing I learned at the Homeless World Cup is sometimes when you support people and I don't think it's specific to homelessness. You create a bubble around them because you want so children or whatever, and and then it means that it's not the reality anymore. Mm. So you you provide working environment 
that is false because if you were to work in Tesco, then that wouldn't be like that at all. You wouldn't have as yeah. much support or as many chances. So um, it needs to be supportive, but it also needs to be matching what reality is because otherwise we set people to fail yeah. when they move on. Yeah, yeah. It's I guess it's that it, your yeah the output is either financially you are giving to a cause that helps people, but it's also the integrating the solution to the problem kind of within what the what the business is isn't it that exactly yeah it's it's kind of like obviously in with in your case like that that problem of homelessness you are giving people a way to come and make money and yeah move away from the the challenge that they're facing um but it's all wrapped up in the business model itself exactly which sometimes makes it hard because i think there are business models where you give your money away, you know, but you run operations in a kind of normal way, if I can say normal. Um, but for I decided to integrate that, like exactly like what you say, as part of the solution is to provide skills and employment to people. And sometimes it makes it hard because managing people who have very complex issues is a nightmare. And somebody, you know, who doesn't understand why this should happen or that or or mentally have, you know, up and down moments all the time makes for, Mm. you know, and and sometimes I have moments where I think this is going so well, you know, we've, our sales are really good, this is going great, and then the guide is not doing really good, and you're like, oh, it never, you know, it never ends, but it is also what we want, what I wanted to do, so it's exactly that, integrating it as part of who we are. And and how would you, stepping away from the kind of obviously the amazing like impact that you have what would you say are the benefits of it from a selfish perspective like because you know from a from a business perspective of I guess of growth because I think this is something you know we we obviously introduced our 100% uh, kind of giving the profit away from SEO travel in in April this year and we I've tried to make the point with it that it's also a a thing that I believe benefits us like but when we show that we're kind of doing things and making an impact with what we do it it makes people want to work with us and therefore we get more clients coming in and it gives us more stability and you know we can like you said you can reinvest in the business and you can do all these different kinds of things so yeah how would you you know if you're someone's listening to this and they're, they're thinking like oh whether it's someone new or whether it's someone with a model as it is and they're kind of thinking oh that sounds interesting like but I don't just want to kind of I want to look after myself as well how would you sort of pitch that to them in in that sense and the benefits that come with it I think um you definitely have an element of you know fitting within corporate social responsibility for a lot of people um a lot of other organizations you it's also a selling point for in our case you know some people who want to do a tour but want to do it as, want to do it social um and so you we use it in marketing quite a lot you know and we promote it and we're really proud of it and as should you you know but it's also what makes the decision happen uh sometimes especially in a in a place like walking tours where it's highly competitive um and the other thing is we were able to attract funding when we started that I wouldn't have attracted if it wasn't for the fact that we were a social enterprise. 
So and, and similarly, at different stages of growth, you know, we um, received social investment. So again, you know, investment money at very, very interesting rates with conditions, with things that enable us to grow, but not put a pressure that maybe a more mainstream loan would. Um, so there's a, and there's a lot of support around running your business, creating your business that you can attract. And yes, there is a lot of support to, you know, for entrepreneurs and, and companies and things like that. But I think uh, for social enterprise in particular, there's a lot of peer support, but also, you know, very practical support you can um, attract. And a very good example of that is when COVID started, you know, we were able to attract support in the two areas as an Edinburgh based business, um, as a small business, as a tour operator business, but also as a social enterprise. Mm. So you you have all hats all of a sudden. And, you know, the Scottish government supported us um, with that maybe they in a way that was more than they would have supported if we were, if we were not a social enterprise. Mm. Um, and then we were able, because of our social mission, to attract other kind of supporters and um and and people who come on board and maybe it is you know we have a lot of corporates who want to offer pro bono work as well um and I often use the the lawyer like the we worked with a lawyer who was great and lovely and offered us pro bono work but he was quite he would often say this would have cost you three thousand pounds because he charges 500 quid an hour yeah so i was i was always very conscious and he he also did it not in a creepy way, like not in a, oh, should you be lucky to have all that support? Like he did it in a very fun way. Yeah. But, you know, that he wouldn't have offered pro bono work and his company wouldn't have signed it off if it wasn't for a social enterprise. So I think there are very clear um, benefits to it, but also sometimes limitations because, like I said, you know, um, I, if I got a penny each time I heard, oh, this is such a cute thing you're trying to do. When I started, I'd be rich by now because <laughs> people were saying, oh yeah, this is so sweet. Oh, good luck with your project. You know, people wouldn't say that about business yeah, at yeah. all. So sometimes it's kind of, you have to find the right ground, the kind of middle ground, but um how did that feel when people were saying that? Is that was that like a pat, like a nice warm feeling, or was that like a don't patronize me? I'm setting a business. No, up. no, don't. Yeah, no, don't patronize me. Thank you, but no thanks. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna move on um, with that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and um, no, no, and and also it was usually people who didn't understand, um, and that only happened at the very start. I have yeah. to say, it hasn't happened in a while. Yeah. But uh, yeah, no, no, absolutely, <laughs> and also sometimes. Other social enterprises can be quite competitive in a way. I I'm, I'm mm. met somebody who said to me, oh, I, I never see you in Edinburgh. I never see your guides anywhere. And I'm like, are you on the streets constantly? And I said to her, you know why? It's because we're invisible. That's why you don't see us. <laughs> and I was so proud of that line. I was like, oh, yeah, good. But, you know, yeah. what what are you implying here? I was like, yeah. what do you I'm fine. How are you? You know, that's yeah, what it yeah. should be. So sometimes, and that's because like with charities, sometimes we compete for the same pots of money. Yeah. yeah. Or for the same bit of support or for the, for the same pro bono bit or whatever it is. So I think there's also that to consider. Yeah. I think the, uh, 
like you say, there's so there's so many benefits to it. I think it's it requ- it just requires the sort of separation of someone who's starting a business to 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 the goal being like a big pot of cash or a bank account that just constantly just fills up with with cash that you can buy yachts with and and things like that and it the 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 separation of that idea and but also the fact that you can still make a very good living and like off 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 the back it as well like you said you pay yourself a salary and you know obviously the more business get the more successful the business gets the better a salary you can give yourself and and you know that the way it works like that so I, I think yeah people might think about it as a you know, a sort of sacrificial, like I've got to be a martyr to do this kind of thing. But actually, yeah, from what I, the more that I've learned about it as, as I've been delving into these kind of topics, yeah, it's, it's uh, I think it's important to drive home the fact that you can be very successful from a personal perspective as well as, you know, as well as all the, the benefit. And, and that includes like the nice feeling of happiness and stuff that comes from making an impact and all the good stuff that you do. Yeah, and I think, <clears throat> um there still is a bit of chat around how much we should pay ourselves and, you know, and I, especially in women, I see a lot of, uh, and, and I am guilty of that too, you know, like having a salary and increase it and saying, well, if it was any of my friends, I'd say you deserve this and you can, you know, and if your business can afford it, no problem. But I see so many people who say, especially, you know, they've run, they've run the business or the social enterprise for a few years and say, I still don't draw myself a salary. And you're like, why? Either your business is not working or you can't make it work to withdraw a salary, which is one thing. And maybe you need to rethink about it or you have, there's an issue here. And I think there's a massive difference between men and women. Um, and, and knowing, that you know they can and that's allowed and i think within the sector there's also uh a stigma around that because we do what's good and what's right we shouldn't be on very high salaries Mm. um and i met somebody who said to me oh you know i have this conversation all the time why he was doing like a tech base um company and he was saying i'm i want to get to a salary of one hundred and fifty thousand pounds a year and he was like, and that's it. And I'm not making any excuse for it. And I bring a lot of value into this company and that's it. And you're like, yeah, so my approach is I bring a lot of value into my company, I think. Um, and I try to, it's constantly at the back of my mind. And, but I do what's also affordable for the social enterprise. Yeah, and yeah. I think that's fine. Um, so yeah, we and, and I think it's very important because like you say, if you don't make money, then how do you live your life? Yeah, and, and it's no good for then, anyone. Yeah, like no. all that positive impact that you have down the line for all these people that you're doing it for, if you don't look after yourself you. and the business first, then, and it comes, I think it comes to, you know, we'll come on to the team and who you've got around you and things like that in a minute. But, you know, if you want to employ fantastic people who do a fantastic job that help the business grow and have a bigger impact, like, you've got to pay them, <laughs> you've got to yeah. pay them or they will go elsewhere. And you look, you know, I think yeah. you look at charities and things like that and who CEOs of charities and they're getting big, crazy money and, and it kind of needs to happen because they, you know, there's always that argument out there of, um, yeah, that's money that could have gone to the cause, but it's like, well, no, if you want to get the best people to run this thing and, and grow it and have the, you know, develop the impact that it has down the line, yeah, the people within it have got to be, you know, have got to be... Um, taken care uh, of. Taken care of, yeah. 
I know. And I think the one thing that's missing for social entrepreneurs is to do some more training. So if anyone out there is listening that does any of that, is to do training around our relationship with money and um, and how we think about it. Because for me, for example, I get to travel a lot through work and I get to do a lot of different events and things which bring as much value to me as my salary so I think you know in the biggest scheme of things that's definitely a benefit and Mm. and I love it I also am like I said to you if I have 10 quid I'll spend 11 if I have 20 I'll spend 21 you know so (laughs) if I make more money will it make a difference to my lifestyle no I'll find a way to spend it do not worry so I think if but if you're honest about this and you know about this then I think it can define what you want to do with your salary levels or your progressions or all your things. Um, And I did something like that in Germany, a kind of workshop around it, our own personal values around money, how that can help when you apply for funding, how, when you apply, when you determine what salaries are, when you advertise for a job, and there's nothing worse than having a job ad and not a salary to think and check against what you already make, what you want to make, you know, and I think uh, if if you're honest about that, you know, and if I had a family, then I probably would need, I would definitely need other considerations to come on board. Um, and, and I think it's very important. Yeah. Let's, so let's take that to the team side of things. So yeah, what, what does the team look like around you at the moment? Who, who, who do you have kind of working in the business, supporting you? Obviously that filters down to, the homeless people that you bring in and have as the tour guides like tell it tell us about that structure and and what it looks like so historically like i said we grew from edinburgh and um to glasgow and manchester and we run those centrally so the invisible cities team run directly everything related to these three cities and then for york where we launched in 2019 we work in partnership with another organization called the good organization um cic and so they have their own team and their own kind of agenda as well because they work on other things and the tours are included in that but as part of the invisible cities team it's five uh, i don't know anymore six of us um so one two three in edinburgh no five of us five and three and only women which wasn't by design, but um, ended up being the best talent and, and people wanting to work on board, you know, come on board and mm-hmm. be with us. And two are based in Manchester. The biggest, the most important role to me is the person, we always try to have a person that supports the guides day to day. So a bit like a support worker, or we call them community engagement, you know, so they get people on board, follow them through their training, provide one-to-one support. And sometimes that support is around housing or around health or around reuniting with family. It could be really anything. Um, and we used to have a person in Edinburgh and a person in Manchester. And now we're going to recruit for a person in Edinburgh because we're missing that here. Um, so we have Millie in Manchester who does that. We have a sales and business person in Manchester called Lauren as well, um, who joined us last year so peak covid time yeah. um but looking at selling those tours and selling this merchandise and all our products 
um, and we have a social media person as well and we have somebody looking at merchandise for very few hours a week and getting into shops, into marketplaces and then me. Um, and then we have 16 guides around Edinburgh, Glasgow, Manchester and York who work um, regularly, we'll say. So some of them regularly will be, we have a full-time guide in the house uh, Paul in Edinburgh. So he tours online now and in person, but he also mentors others um, when they come on board or when they're developing a new tour or when they want to go online. So very broad um, stuff for him. And then you have people who guide on a part-time basis. You have people who do even fewer than that. They just want to do a couple of days a week, a couple of tours. That's fine. Um, and then in the background, we still have people who train or who are involved, but maybe guiding is too much right now um, for whatever life reasons or, you know, other reasons like they may have learning difficulties um, yeah, or still battling addiction or whatever it may be. So we have a further 10 people like that across our cities. Um, but the core team, like I said, only women. Um, and the way I try to do it is to say, I, another piece of advice I got is when you run tours, when you're a tour operator, it's a bit like you're a media company. You have to showcase your vet, like your location, your product, all of that. So social media was very important to us. Um, yeah. But um, also looking at the way we split up the work for ourselves. Um, and especially for me, because again, you know, I used to do everything on my own and I moved into recruiting more people and delegating was really hard. And then there's always something to do. So, you know, I have to look after my own well-being, my own mental health and not kind of completely burning out um, and decided that Lauren, for example, who's based in Manchester, she's very great at social media and organically getting people so spreading the word so that those bookings come in um, whereas I don't like that at all what I really like is the direct sale to go after a company and say buy 100 tickets yeah, I like yeah. to win so <laughs> so and I like to close so you know I'm happy doing that in my own space and she's happy doing the more media building yeah. a, a brand thing and it works quite well because she doesn't have to worry about me and I don't have to worry about her. <laughs> nice, nice. So tell us what you've learned from the that kind of recruiting and training process, Sakia. So whether it's bringing in people to work with you in the business that you're talking about there, whether it's working with the homeless and like training them, because obviously that I imagine is kind of a extreme unconventional scenario for like when you're trying to you know to train people so yeah what have you what advice have you got what have you kind of learned through through doing that so the training we offer for our guides is based on transferable skills and sometimes things that may seem a bit obvious so public speaking body language customer service um all things to build confidence, really, to be able to access, to be a guide, to take a group um, somewhere. And I found that the content, so the historical element of it is not to worry about when, uh, you know, for us and our guides, because they are passionate about loads of different things. 
um, and they already had a million ideas before they joined the training. It's more the confidence to say, yeah, I can take a group, I can structure a tour, I can provide, you know, deliver a good story, how yeah. to actually tell a good story, you know, and with a beginning and an end and not just something that's all over the place because people won't follow what you have to say and um, that type of thing. And I think those those different elements bring skills that people can use anywhere they go, which for us is really important because when they need a full-time job or when they want to move on and do other things, they'll, you know, we try to signpost them to other interviews, other opportunities and other things. So um, the softer skills are always very important um, for a guide. And also when, when you do travel and we all know that you meet someone who has to be likable. If they're not likable, then what's the point? You know, you're not going to enjoy your experience. So, um, and what I've realized is that some of the work we have to do a lot more now um, is to manage expectations and manage egos a little bit, um, which with tour with guides apparently is a thing that happens. Um, so I think it's quite nice that we are experiencing that like other operators do because we definitely are working with the same kind of people, even though our guides have other issues going on. Um, and I've done tours as well where the guide was, I was like, oh no, you can't say that to a group. Absolutely not. You know, you know, completely judging over here of your style and, and your kind of behavior. But, um, and I think also because when you're the center of attention for a bit, then it gives you this confidence even more so. So that's what we try to do. And through other things as well, like if somebody's involved, but not directly guiding, we try to build up their confidence in a different way. Now for the team um, and for, we also have volunteers, you know, amazing volunteers who do anything from writing content for our website to helping at events, promote the tours, you know, um, what else? Yeah, help us with online tours as well and the platforms and, you know, that kind of thing. I think, yeah, um, yeah it's, um, I've always found recruiting people a difficult thing. Um, I have to say as staff members um, and especially now more so than ever, um, I think there's a lot of uh, preoccupation and worry in the world about what, what things are going to look like and, and things like that. And, and I hear other companies and entrepreneurs and social entrepreneurs say the same, they can't recruit anyone for anything. Um, so we're really lucky to have people um, who are so great on board. But what I find is that sometimes when people are so passionate about something, um, they really take it on personally. So they really take on the work and the, the tasks with them and just start making all the decisions and just say, well, I'll do this. And why don't we do this? And you're like, would you do this at Tesco again? Like, would you decide no, you wouldn't, because there's a clear line of who your manager is and what happens. I, I used to find that with the Homeless World Cup as well. Sometimes when we had volunteers, they would decide what they were doing. And you're like, well, no, it's not. And I think it comes from a really good place of feeling so empowered in that sense of ownership that um, that they want to carry on with it and they want to be helpful. But you're like, actually, no, that's not what we need right now. You know, yeah. so...
so yeah, the heart's in the right place, but they're they're kind of going off away from what the things that need doing that their responsibility yeah. is. Yeah, exactly. And um, and it's quite hard sometimes to have to tune people back in because you don't want to, you know, get them stop being so passionate. But at the same yeah. time, you're like, really? And sometimes <laughs> I find that as well, you know, a very good example is when somebody says, oh, I'll give you a donation, but I want it to be spent like that. Yeah, and yeah. I had somebody last Christmas she said, oh, I want, I want to give you, my work wants to give you a donation, but it needs to be spent on Christmas lunch. And I was like, I don't need money for Christmas lunch because we already had it all organized. Yeah, so I was like, yeah. no, no. And she wouldn't budge. And I'm like, well, I can't take it then. Like, I'm so sorry, but it's not how it's going to be spent. And I often think, would you go to UNICEF and say, here's a hundred quid, but I want you to spend it like that. No. You wouldn't. You would just trust them that they spend it right. And I think yeah. there is that idea that because we're small and local and approachable, then they can determine what yeah, happens. Yeah. And sometimes in the team, we discuss that and I can be very strict about it. And I say, I don't want anyone fundraising if they're going to tell us how to use the money. Um, yeah, yeah. Because you have to trust that we, we make the right decisions for the people we work for. Um, yeah. And on that, yeah. on that front, have you got anything, I guess, as a small, as a small brand to instill that trust in people? Cause yeah, whether you're a social enterprise, whether it's fundraising, whether you're just a business trying to get someone to buy your product, like as a smaller, like lesser known brand, that obviously is a, you know, a, a challenge, you know, to instill that in people. Is it, yeah. How, how have you gone about that to, yeah, to get that, to gain that trust? We try to let people know what we do through social media, let our guides speak for themselves of the support they're receiving and um, the things that they're doing. Sometimes I think we undersell ourselves and, and when some when a guide will say, oh, you know, somebody from Invisible Cities actually attends doctor's appointment with me. And, you know, if someone says, oh, why? And I think, well, if they're not healthy, how can they deliver tours? But sometimes you just need a bit of moral support to go to your GP, you know especially when you haven't been in 30 years. Um, so I think giving the voice and the, the stage to our guides is what we try to do throughout the business, but yeah. also to describe the work that we do. Um, we worked in partnership with a Big Issue to deliver an impact report as well um, in a comprehensive way. So I, was, I realized that I was very good at the storytelling and the anecdotal approach of saying this is sunny and this is how being a guide has changed his life and you know and, and telling you that but never really in a in a way that would show statistics or would show mm. numbers exactly um so together we worked out a matrix um to measure our, our social value and uh, we felt so the first report we did was in 2020 um, for 2019 and we realized and we found that our social value is 197,000 pounds um, and that includes things like employing the guides bringing them support the training hours but also all the different maybe emergency grants they wouldn't access through their local council because yeah. they're having support from us 
all the doctor's appointment they're not making because they feel supported in their own community and are not needing that extra support. Um, so th that type of thing is good for those who maybe have more of a analytical mind to see what we do and how we do it. And then through the storytelling um, for everyone else. And I think we try to, I try to be as transparent as possible. So sometimes even with the things that are not that great, you know, and, and when we have difficulties recruiting guides, then we will say so, you know, or, um, and I think as a company or as a social enterprise, transparency and honesty is quite important, even when that is not as glorious as what you wanted it to be. You know, I yeah, think yeah. we all struggle. Um, I think that's the bit where it's most effective though, isn't it? When, when the tough things, you know, it's all, it's easy to be honest and transparent when you're shouting about great numbers and great impact and all these kind of things, like the, t the tough bit of the honest and transparency things when it's going badly or you've hit a challenge or something tough has happened and it's like, but do I have to tell everyone this? <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. that thing when yeah. you step up and you do tell and share people that and share that, that's where, that's where the benefit of it, of it comes from. But it, obviously it's got to be done in a, you know, kind of an authentic and a genuine way rather than just, uh, yeah, play, pasting it on a, on a values uh, sheet on your website. And, and exactly. Um, you've mentioned storytelling a few times um t from a, tell us tell us what that means to you tell us what it means to the business like how those things are, are intertwined and why you feel so so strongly about it so our tours are always a mix of you know the showcasing the city and and its monuments and its history but also places that people like to go to um places that have helped them along the way and personal stories as well but there's a clear and we make it very clear when we start training and when we start that journey that if people don't want to share their personal story then that's fine and um, they don't have to and they you know they can easily say no I don't if someone asks a question no I don't want to talk about that and that's fine um, but what tends to happen is that the more confident they get into their own tour, the more customers they meet, the more they realize that people come from a good place and are not asking them out of pure curiosity or to mock them or to challenge them. You know, they want to generally know and they want to have a chat about it and kind of understand homelessness a bit more. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, one... Uh, Sometimes what I hear from especially American companies or travelers is, are other tours safe for my customers or for me to go on to? And I always answer this question by saying, safe for whom? Because the ones that are afraid usually are my guides. They're mm. not you. Because especially when they start, I think when you have experienced aggression or stigma or people saying oh why don't you get a job you know and you feel that whatever you're doing next people will judge and so I think that's why they have a bit of a fear answering those questions as they get comfortable into that it's very lovely to see them getting comfortable with their own story and, and wanting to share that a bit more but I think also there is a for what I've realized over the years is that there is a way tell your story and sometimes especially when it involves traumatic events it can be all over the place and so we work together 
about how to tell a story as part of a tour. So you have to have a thread and, you know, it has to have a theme and it can't just be, you know, and you're showcasing on a route what happens. So you have to have some structure to that. But we also work on how you tell your own story. Um, and we train with a, a public coach, um, public speaker coach, sorry, who helps us with, with that. Um, and that's quite important. And sometimes what happens is also guides tip the other way where they tell you too much information and you're like, nobody needs to know all of this, you know? Um, but I think it's because, you know, you grow confident and you're like, people will be interested in knowing this. And, and we have to come in and say, no, nobody's interested in hearing this. <laughs> so, so it is very important. And I think it's part of the support, I guess, in a way that, um, we can provide, which is being okay with your own story and, you know, being able to tell it or not. Like, I think there's, um, when I started, I had a guide who was very uncomfortable around the fact that we said we work with people who have experienced homelessness, didn't want to see the word homeless, homelessness associated with her mm. and the tours and wanted me to remove it from every marketing bit. Um, and we had loads of conversations about that. And I would say things like people who've been challenged or disadvantaged. And, and then I made the decision that actually, if homelessness is something that is not you, but happened to you, then surely the word should be neutral. You know, it should not be, you shouldn't fight. And her point of view was, it's happened to me in the past. I don't want to be associated with that. And I think, I think the problem here is that it has, you're still associated with it in your head because otherwise what would it have so much pull onto? And, and I haven't experienced homelessness myself. So she was like, well, you don't know because you've, and I said, no, like also you, we can't be upset at people for not having been homeless in their lives. So we do a lot of work like that around language around homelessness or language around, um, you know, LGBTQ plus community language around, especially in a city like Glasgow, slavery, you know, things like that. I think selfishly, some of it is part of me because I studied linguistics and I was really interested in that mm. um, and gendered based language. And that that's what I um, did a dissertation on. So, you know, I'm like, yes, we can definitely work on this. Let me tell you all the bits that nobody ever wants to hear about because they think it's too geeky and now we can actually put it into practice um so there's a lot for us it's all part of the story and this also includes me you know i get asked to speak at a lot of events and and things and sometimes the story has to change um and i did a big conference in florida in 2019 for arrival um and it was, I want to say about a thousand people in the room, but it was very big stage, very big um, audience and, you know, loads of mics, TV screens, very impressive. I prepared a lot for that speech mm. and it was really well received. It was great. But first you have to work on it, you know, like it doesn't come like this. And I had to rehearse so much and I was so nervous about it, but... I said, I, people asked me about my personal story and I said, you know, I worked at the Homeless World Cup and, and then one day I was really ill and um, 
I left my work and uh, and then I set up Invisible Cities. And so many people came to me and said, what do you mean you were really ill? And I said, oh, I was diagnosed with cancer. And they said, okay, see, if you had said that, your story would have been so much more powerful. And then I realized I had a limitation here where mm. I couldn't bring myself to say that on a stage for whatever reason. So I had to work on that now. And I talk about it a bit more um, now than I ever did before. And I was like, it was deliberate to choose the words I was sick or I was ill or whatever and not say. um, But I think all that work helps us grow. And as a speaker, as a leader or as a guide and as somebody who's ready to move on, um with their lives so we do it on in different ways but we do it together yeah yeah i saw i saw you in another interview somewhere i think uh talk you talked about having a coach and seeing a coach like like every month or or, or however often oh yes what do you what do you do with the coach what kind of things do you work on what do you what do you get out of that so she's a life coach which um and I started working with her, with Val, when I um, put a pitch for some a pot of money back in 2018. So it was very business related. Um, it was to get that, to achieve that, to get confidence in that, build a business plan, you know, all of that. So the first can, and so that was 2018, and we've, I've seen her every month since then. So obviously that pot of money is gone, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but um, it was about. I think so it can be related to the business, how we want, how I want it to grow, what, where I see it, um, ambitions with it, how I manage my day to day kind of workload. But also it's dipped into obviously a lot of personal things, um, my own confidence, my own aspirations, you know, my own life. And I think um, it, she's and, and how to reflect on um, what happens, how to celebrate a victory which sometimes we don't do um, yeah. when you're so caught up in the day-to-day, you know. Um, also how to deal with something that's gone wrong, how to, so how, how to reflect on that. Um, and I have to say, like, so I've, I've gone through challenging bits with her. Like my mother passed away last year in May. And if it wasn't for her, honestly, I don't know. I don't think I would have been ready to cope with it. And... Mm. Even my sister, who doesn't believe in any of that, she's like, oh, life coach, you know, said to me, do you want to phone her? Like, do you want to have a session now? A bit like an AA meeting. She was like, do you need it right now? And I was like, no, I don't need it right now, but I'll tell her and then we can go through and process all of that together. So it's become so much more. But I think it's getting the tools to have confidence in yourself, whatever area of your life that may be about, and also determine what you want to do next, which is quite important. And yeah. sometimes, you know, or how to be good with money, for example. And um, and as somebody, you know, I tend to kind of close my eyes and just go. And then I'll say, when I open them, it should be okay. That's how I am. I've always been. But actually, should I change that? And now that I'm a bit older, should I be saving? Should I be looking at budgeting more and all of that? And and I can, if, you know, some people may be like me, I can only come to these conclusions on my own. If you tell me what to do, I won't do it. Yeah. So, and we work together 
on that. And I think sometimes it's half therapy, half coaching, <laughs> but it's very, very important. And it is an investment because it costs money and time and effort. And once a month, you kind of go in the room and you're like, oh, I don't want to do that. But actually, every time I come out now, and I think, you see, I was just kidding myself. I was just thinking I was so ready for this and I wasn't or um, I wanted this and actually I didn't or, you know, and, and I think it's so anyone who want to work with a coach has been considering that absolutely do it. I think, you know, I got into it for very specific reasons mm. um, and I've been I think I've become so much more aware of who I am and what I'm like. Um, and a lot more comfortable. And of course, I've grown over the years, you know, like I've aged, so it helps. Yeah. But um, I don't think it's solely because of age that I'm a bit wiser. I think it's because of that work. And if I didn't have somebody to hold my hand to do it with me, then I wouldn't have done it. So yeah, yeah. if you're considering it, doing do it. Absolutely, you won't regret it. If you find the right person, then definitely a yeah. coach is great. I I agree. I've I've uh, I've worked with a, like a couple of coaches over the last few years. Uh, again, similar similar of where you know kind of business led business coaches that um, yeah I I felt like I needed the the support but uh, yeah from someone who'd maybe been there and done that a, a little bit and uh, rather than just muddling around in the dark and, and seeing how it turned out to to get a bit of support there. But to, exactly as you said, Zaki, it, it, that I think when you're running your own business in particular the crossover with just your own personal development and you and what you're like is so baked into what all those challenges are that come together with the business and what you need to do and how you need to react to it that um that yeah they they almost become one and one and the same and uh, yeah i've i've found it super valuable I, i've kind of like i say worked with a couple of people for in sort of slightly different specialisms um and yeah, I've I've taken a I've taken a huge amount from it, um, and and I think it's one of those things that yeah, people, um, you know, if you want to be the best at a sport or you want to get better at music or whatever it might be, like you pay for a teacher to or a coach to help you get better at those things. So it's crazy to kind of think that you're just gonna get better at business or get better at life or you know all these other things <laughs> that with, yeah. while you just try to muddle through on your own. So. Um, so yeah, I echo your your thoughts that if anyone is kind of tempted by that, um, that it, I would yeah highly recommend doing it. And even if you're not tempted by it, like it's worth it's worth thinking about because it does uh, yeah. I think just having someone sat across from you on the other side of a screen, wherever it is, just making you sit down and have a break and reflect on some things um, is a very beneficial thing to do. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, just kind of dialing it back to the marketing side of things again. Um, time's flown, so I've got uh, I've got a couple more questions, and then we'll start to we'll start to bring it to a close. But on the, on the marketing front, um, what's worked on that side of things? You, you've talked about the storytelling element that I guess just runs through the brand. Um, you've talked about your speaking. You know, obviously, I've I've you know you've done TED talks. You mentioned kind of going to to other places. What what has, has anything else? What you talked about social media as well. What what else has worked on that front that's been successful for you? And has there been anything you've done that just hasn't worked either? That um, that yeah, you think uh, yeah, you could you could offer some insight into. Um. So I think 
you're absolutely right. Um, we try to run through that storytelling element throughout the business and the brand and everything we do. Try to give a space to the, you know, have the guides at the center um, of the stage and make them the focus. Um, but I think what I've realized is that um, sometimes people were interested in me, like what we're doing right now, you know, and hearing that story um, and hearing my personal story, my personal experience. I think that comes from a place of, you know, having people with lived experience running a lot of things, which is great, but not always the case. And like I said, you know, I've not experienced homelessness myself. Doesn't mean that I'm not super passionate about finding solutions. So I've embraced that a bit more of being a speaker and doing all these things. And, and even when it comes to business and things like that. Um, but what we try to do as well is embed our tours, which is the main thing we do into everything else that we promote. But what worked really well is in 2019, so it started in York in with um, Invisible York. Our partner there designed a poster that was A0, so really big, and was laid on the streets and it said, I laid on the pavement. If this if this poster was a homeless person, then most people wouldn't look at it. So it's um, I can send you a picture of it. And yeah. there was another one that said it was really awkwardly put in a corner somewhere, and it said this is a bad place for a poster, even worse place for a bed. And those were a bit like a guerrilla marketing campaign because they were so big they got taken away quickly. Right. But they got they started getting shared online. And they went completely viral. Um, wow. People saying, how great is that? So then we did the same in Edinburgh, Glasgow, Manchester. And literally at nighttime, went into with our posters, put them in a few places, took photos of them, and then started sharing them online. Um, and, and people really liked how simple they were and how effective the messaging was. Yeah. Um, and to this date, sometimes... So recently they were shared by someone on LinkedIn again and and it brings awareness again. And, and people sometimes say, oh, it's a lot of money spent on advertising that could be spent on um, helping people. And my answer is I spent 50 pounds for the printing of everything across our cities. So for 50 quid, I think it was really well spent if it brought light onto our company. Um, because obviously all our logos were there and we didn't have any other messaging but that big letters. Yeah. Um, so it was completely different out of the box thinking to just show and raise awareness of our brand, but not necessarily through our tours, but it always brings it back to that. Yeah. Um, so I'm quite keen to do things like that more and more because they're very cost effective and... Um, and, and they work well and working with partners, you know, working with people who can, who have bigger voices than us in tourism um, and who can spread the word about what we do. So last year we won best community tour in the world by Lonely Planet for their best in travel list wow. 2021. And so, you know, they have a much bigger audience than we will ever have. And um which is fine. We're not trying to compete with that. But I think, you know, the fact that they highlighted our work and we were the only UK based company on there. So it really brought us profile and 
you know, momentum in a way. It was very awkward because we didn't have tours running because it was lockdown here, but we had loads of people talking about it all the time. So again, you know, that didn't cost us anything, but the time to build that relationship with Lonely Planet and for them to be aware of what we do and how we do it. So I think some, and because we are a social enterprise, we can do things like that. That's what I mean by having a bit of freedom to decide what you want to do really. Um, and maybe what you do won't quite work, but that's okay because you're not a you know a charity that has to justify every penny spent on you know we can decide and say let's give that a go. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I'm well, quite you know keen on creative solutions. Yeah, fantastic. They're great examples. They are really good. Um, then it, in terms of the the business and where it's going. Zakia, what, what, how do you foresee like the, yeah, the future, the next few years? What's, what's the plan? I've seen you doing cool stuff with like creating a card game. I saw you'd, you'd done that. Uh, obviously, you'd done some virtual tours. Tell, tell us a bit more about how the next few years looks. So I think the, you know, going back to what I said, I think the advice of hearing when you're a tour company, you're really a media company, really stuck with me so everything we do like the merchandise also showcases our cities also talks about some of the themes that we talk about during the t the tours so the card game we have a new one on women of the uk trying to showcase who they are and give them more representation because they certainly don't have representations in our cities um and so it's all tied together obviously we want to launch in more cities in the uk um, so we were on track to launch in Cardiff, Wales, before COVID, but that's going to happen in 2022. So that's quite um, exciting and probably in another location in the UK at that point um, as well. And what I would really like to do is trial an international location. So m probably in Europe, because um, that will be easier than... Yeah in the states for example but um trying to find have a uh and i think at that point if we have an international location we might have to look at the way we run things and maybe having an hq in in europe which would be great yeah. um and next year um i'm going to launch a private company called i don't know yet but <laughs> to do mostly <laughs> sustainable tourism but for a more luxury market so yeah. i have a few connections and a friend that i'm going to get into that um with who works on mice and uh, incentive travel and so we are a supplier of hers all the time but what i've noticed is a, an appetite for sustainable offers that fit yeah. a client that wants everything organized from the moment they arrive to the moment they leave um and and I, I really want to tie that in with invisible cities so make it a commercial entity but obviously you know using invisible cities as a supplier donating money to that so whether it's a you know maybe not all of it but making it work in a way like that and i think again trying different models of different things and trying to blend it in is a good is a good way to do it and i think we might be at a stage by next year where 
we've solidified our existing tours in our existing cities where I can focus a bit more of my head on that. Yeah. And I think we've all seen, you know, a, a really big ask for sustainable travel, alternative travel, whether that's different groups looking at things that were overlooked before, like women, you know, history and representation. And, and I really want to do that in a more mainstream way. So mm. maybe that's a way. But for Invisible Cities, launching in more cities um, and and empowering our guides more. So we have a guide, Paul, like I was saying to you, he's touring, but he's also mentoring others to do the same, to, you know, to tour and to train. Um, we have a guide in Manchester who's running um, community project. So employing people, not just for the guiding, but for other things they could do. And uh, what I'm trying to think about right now is one of our guides is going to relocate to be closer to his family, which is great. Um, but could he be empowered to start his own tour there without us, you know? Um, so that type of work, which solidifies our impact um, in a way and, and, and have a better understanding of how we do that. What tools do you need all of a sudden, which are not relating to the storytelling, but more of the business side of things. Um, so exciting things, but yeah. um, I think, you know, I still can't believe it's December now. <laughs> so I still think <laughs> oh, we're in 2020. Right. So um, yeah, ask me again in next year. Um, yeah. But a lot of things, which is great. And it's a very privileged position to be in, to have exciting plans ahead after the 18 months we've had. Yeah, fantastic. Um, yeah, I should I, I should introduce you to Gavin Bates, who uh, runs the, one of the charities that we, we give our profit to. And he's got his business set up as a private business and then a, a charity that's as a social enterprise. And yeah, they work very closely together. So it sounds like you might end up having a kind of similar similar setup there. So he might be able to, yeah, he might be able to give you some guidance. Having, having that would be great. For a long time. Yeah. No, that would be um, good. Yeah, it's just a thing. I finally was like, I think that's what we'll do, um, and and get into a. We we do. I, I think that's one thing I realised. Having groups sometimes who contact us for tours, because we have the knowledge and the expertise locally then end up saying, well, actually, can you package it into a tour of lunch and what hotel would you recommend? And I'm like, well, yeah. that's not quite what we do. But actually, if the demand is there and they know us from, you know, I, I think maybe there's an opportunity there. Yeah, yeah, makes sense. Like you say, it's just uh, time goes on, you learn more stuff. And then, yeah, the thing that you started, however, 10 years ago, Suddenly, it's you think you don't, you know, you shouldn't just be stuck in that one area doing that thing. So, um, yeah, exactly. Sounds exciting, exciting things to come. And then, just as final, the final question that I ask everyone is, if if there was someone sat listening who is thinking about starting up a, a travel tourism business, a social enterprise, or they're very early in the journey of doing that, what what advice would you would you give to that person? Mm. Um, I would say just do it. Just, I think also look at it. it. It is quite daunting when you have an idea you're passionate about and you want to make it a reality. But what I find quite useful is from my events times is everything is only the sum of the little bits that you put together. So one thing at a time, you don't need to do everything all at once. And you certainly don't do, you know, if, if it is about, 
starting to tell other people about it and then maybe playing around with the logo and then playing around, you know, you don't deconstruct whatever it is you would like to do into the little steps it would take you to make it happen. And um, and then, yeah, saying it out loud as well is quite good. Like one thing I realised is sometimes when you say it to other people, it becomes real. So then you have no choice and you have to make it happen. Um, and I have, you know, for Invisible Cities, it's, it was like that. Once the moment I started telling others and that it existed, then it existed. Whether you had a legal company behind it, whether you had even sold a tour before, you know, or had a guide in, in place, because people, you know, if it's in the universe out there, then it is happening. So I think sometimes that's probably the first step that if people don't have too much confidence in in taking that leap, it's quite good to do, speak to others about it um, and out loud and ask them what they think. And then little by little, you know, some I was on another podcast a couple of months ago and the host said to me, you know how we say it takes a village to raise a child and it, it takes a village to raise a business as well. And I really like that because it does take a village. It takes everybody's effort and support and all of that to raise it as well, which means it's a journey. Things change. You know, I think it doesn't, a business has a life of its own. A social enterprise has a life of its own. And sometimes there are things you're like, how did we get here? I don't know. I wouldn't be able to tell you how we got here or why that worked and why that didn't work or whatever. Um, and you could be spiritual and think everything happens for a reason and all of that, you know. I believe that when things are in the flow of what you really want to do, they they happen and and um, and they are successful. But if you don't believe in that, you know, I think you just have to be adaptable and see and change with whatever is happening around your business or your idea. So, um, yeah, I thought it was such a good phrase. Yeah, yeah, like it. The, the the theme of small steps has come up a lot from there. People I've spoken to here, and you know, people who I've listened to and taken advice from, and uh, yeah, I think there's there's a huge amount in that. Of it's nice to have the big goal at the end of it, but if you just take the little steps, they will they will get you somewhere, even if it's not that place, because time changes and the destination changes. So, um, yeah, exactly, uh, exactly, um, yeah. Good stuff. Um, listen, thanks, Zakia. I think, uh, yeah, from what I was saying at the start of uh, hope, hoping and assuming that people would be inspired by what you said, I think you've more than fulfilled that uh, fulfilled that need. It's been so lovely to talk to you, lovely to find out more about um, things that you've done, things that you're doing, things that are coming up. Um, so, yeah, very excited for, for what, you, what you're working on. Good luck with it. If I can be of any help along the way, just, just give me a shout and I'd love to I'd love to help support you in any way that we can. Um, yeah, and hopefully uh, we can we can have you one back one time in the future and uh, see where it's see where it's led to. I know, and say remember when I said all these things. <laughs> yes, and which I love, I really do. You know, I think sometimes it's about celebrating and all of that. But thank you so much for having us, listening to um, me. I could speak for Scotland, so you know, I think. <laughs> 
There's um, something very yeah. soothing about the uh, morphed French Scottish accent. I think that uh, yeah, could I could listen to all day. <laughs> it's funny eh? because some people really spot it, and others are like, no, like I don't know where you're from, and some other people are like, oh yeah, definitely French. And I'm like, I think maybe it also depends to the level of wine I've had. Then it comes yeah. back as well. But no, I, I appreciate the time and interest. And then if there's any, you know, anyone who wants to contact us, please do so. Feel free, you know, um, or yeah, anything we can do as well. And then all the best with everything at your end. Um, and then with the month of December and the new year, which is upon us. So yeah, yeah thank yeah. you very much. Thanks, thanks, Zakia. Tell us, yeah, just as a last thing, tell us where, where can we see you? Give us a URL of the website, any other kind of things you want to push social media wise or anything well so the website which is invisible-cities.org um or social media invisible cities tours um all together um and then on so that's instagram facebook twitter um you can find us there follow us um, and just have a look at what we do and, and how we do it which is always great um, and then come on a tour obviously but uh, i think yeah just um sometimes spreading the word is all we can ask for so yes definitely check us out online absolutely fantastic lovely thanks zakia i'll speak to you soon take care thank you bye and there we have it i loved speaking to zakia it really informed some of the things that we're doing with our 100% initiative and gave me a lot of inspiration for what we can achieve on our own journey. I really hope you enjoyed it too and you've got some good takeaways from what Zakia said. I absolutely loved the guerrilla marketing ideas that she mentioned, which were super effective for them and cost next to nothing. So certainly something you should get your, get your cogs turning and see what you can come up with on that front. If you go to invisible-cities.org, you can find more information about Invisible Cities and what Zaki is doing. And you'll also get links to their various social media channels there as well. And I'd certainly recommend following them because they're doing some super interesting stuff. You can find Zaki on LinkedIn too and connect with her to find out more about what the business is doing in the background. And I've also linked to some of the other social enterprises that Zaki mentioned in the show notes, which are also well worth a look. All those show notes and links are at seotravel.co.uk forward slash Zakia Geary. That's Z-A-K-I-A hyphen G-U-E-R-Y. You can also watch the video of the conversation there or visit seotravel.co.uk forward slash podcast for all the other episodes where you can get lots of other insight too. If you're a travel company looking for marketing support from people who really care about your success, then please do get in touch at seotravel.co.uk and we'd love to hear from you. You can also read more about our 100% initiative there, which outlines how we give all the profit that we make from the business to educational charities, both at home and around the world. We'd love your support in spreading the word so we can help those charities as much as we possibly can. If you did enjoy the show, it would be amazing if you could review us on iTunes and share what your favourite bits were. Subscribe to it there, and if you could share it with at least one person you know who could benefit from this episode and the things that Zaki has said, we'd love it if you could share that around. If you haven't already, give our other episodes a listen. We've got some great stories from the people who we had on in season one, and there's lots more to come in season two as well. So stay tuned for future episodes. When you subscribe, you'll get notified about those when they're, whenever they're released, uh, so you can be one step ahead of the game. Otherwise, thanks so much for listening, and until next time... Happy travels.